Hello and welcome to the Philosophical Gathering Podcast. This is episode three. The topic today is going to be housing and gentrification. My name is Sammy. I'm here with Andy and our guest today, Bill. Bill was born and raised in Chicago on the northwest side, has lived in Chicago his whole life, along with much of his family. He became interested in gentrification after growing up and hanging out in diverse neighborhoods of Chicago. Growing up as a teenager in the 90s, he saw gentrification in many of the neighborhoods around him. Bill's been a CPS teacher for 20 years, and this has helped him see what is happening in the community and the schools. Currently working in with noble neighbors in the western edge of Humboldt Park and various community groups that are pushing back against gentrification, Bill also works with the Chicago Teachers Union and a housing committee that is working to link issues in education and housing. So we're going to talk about housing and gentrification today, and I'm going to turn it over to Andy, and we'll get started on this conversation. Okay, thanks, Sam. Um, this is a really fascinating topic, so let's just start with a, a working definition, what we mean by gentrification, because the whole city is talking about it, most major uh, metropolitan areas in the country are talking about it. And uh, so why don't you give us your estimate of it? Sure. I just want to thank you, Andy and Sammy, for inviting me to be part of this podcast. I just want to say, you know, preface everything that uh, a lot of these uh, thoughts and ideas uh, come from uh, my experience um, and gleaning from others' experiences as well as reading. So uh, certainly whatever I bring up is not the end-all be-all of what gentrification is and how people have experienced. So I just want to preface that. But thank you, Andy, for asking that question. Um, so, you know, gentrification means a lot of things to many different people. And, uh, you know, I prefer to leave it at what uh, people have experienced so they come up with the definition of what works for them. You know, it, it's, it's like uh, other things, when you see it, and feel it, you know what it is. But uh, I think there's a lot of obsession around trying to pick one definition, that one size that fits all for for everyone. And, and that, I think that would make it easy to work with, especially when you have one one definition. But uh, most of the people I, I've grown up around uh, and have experienced gentrification with will say, they usually describe it in some form of fashion like, uh, it's white people or rich people moving into the neighborhood and then everything changes. So uh, I grew up with that sim as like the proxy for describing gentrification. But, um, you know, I, I, I've settled upon, I really like this definition by, by an MIT urban planner called Devin Mitchell Butler. And I think this encompasses my experience and it might encompass other people's experience. Uh, it said that gentrification is the territorial expansion of a wealthy community into a disinvested neighborhood. The installation of social and legal regi regimes of the newcomers and the deployment of new physical capital, both small scale by homeowners undertaking renovations and by the larger scale by landed capitalists, public sector officials keen on raising revenue. It is the disruption and displacement of the original residents and their spatially realized social networks. So for me, I think that encompasses a lot of the experience that I've had in Chicago um, on the ground. That, that sounds about right to me. That's, uh, that's what I've seen for the last uh, 
15 years I've been working in Logan Square and uh, and more recently in Humble Park, and it just seems to be getting worse. I mean, the actual homelessness, I mean, people sleeping everywhere under bridges and all this kind of stuff, You're right. that wasn't there 25, 30 years ago. I mean, no. people had little apartments. They had little... I know a lot of guys, homeless guys, from the neighborhood who grew up in the neighborhood, who had jobs, had apartments, had families, and all that's gone for them. They're now, some of them sleep in roughs, some of them sleeping in shelters, but right. that they were actually displaced. And as we know, 20,000 uh, Latino families have been pushed out of um, Logan, Logan Square. Square. That's like incredible. I know. All on the... Um, watch of who knows who <laughs> the democratic and, and, party right won. and you're also people have been sounding the alarm about logan square for just as the same amount of time and people we live through it and we people deny that it's it's doing anything or people deny they say that it's bringing uh making logan square wonderful and great the crime is gone and you know we have uh diversity now and so that's happening while 20,000 families are being displaced. We see it in real time. And I think it's hard for people to see it. I think uh, folks would rather read it in a book about what happened 20 years ago rather than deal with what's happening right now on the ground in Logan Square and moving west. It's moving west, trying to jump over Pulaski. There's a lot of speculation happening. So we need to see it for what it really is, what's really happening right now, and create a bulwark against those that push because we can organize we can organize going further west folks that are just live, not having to deal with gentrification they're dealing with other things we could organize them i mean it seems obvious to me in a way but i've been around it for a while well how do you think it actually makes the affordability problem worse? I mean, how, what's the mechanics of that Do you, as you understand it? It's speculators, it's developers, investors, corporate landlords. They, like, and even you can get down to the small homeowner, you could get down to just general, that's just the ecosystem we live in. We look at housing as a commodity, not as something that is uh, a place to live or shelter for folks. So I think that, you know, the mechanics, how it works from my perspective is that uh, the investors, the developers and the landlords, corporate landlords particularly, uh, enter into poor and historically in disinvested areas and they drop, they need to drop their excess capital somewhere. They, they're making their money somewhere else, some other space, and they need to drop their money somewhere because they need to continue growing their profit. Um, so, you know, this, in my opinion, signals to other landlords, Hey, something's changing. We could raise our rents, uh, signals to the small homeowner that their property values are going to rise. And so they can sell their homes for insane profit, uh, signaling to taxing bodies that their property values are rising so they could tax more. It's just this, this process that uh, continues. It's just like the idea of, it starts with those speculators. It starts with the developers, the investors, high-end investors, and then it trickles. Well, it goes down to uh, regular Joes that look at housing as 
their only way to make uh, wealth. So I think that um, there is a, a geographer back when I was in planning school, urban planning school, his name was Neil Smith, and he talks about this idea of the rent gap. You know, like from the way I understand it is that you have the actual value of, of land and rents and its potential value, and that gap is that realization that there's this huge gap between those two things is the start of the gentrification and uh, the continual trying to close that gap is the is what we call uh, how gentrification continues and how housing becomes unaffordable to those producers of gentrification. They're trying to close that gap. Right, right, right. One of the things that I th I think that we've seen, like if we go back in history, uh, a piece of property or a building will change hands. Like I used to live in a, a place in Wicker Park that originally was like a mansion and right. then been... And now that was a three flat. It went into actual. Some people would call it a slum or something mm -hmm. like that. And then, and then it recycled, you know, back into a, a basically a mansion. So right. that can you talk a little about the? Um, it sort of has to do with the history of Chicago immigration patterns, where people come in from Europe. They come in from the south, they come in from Puerto Rico, and then property changes hands, they have to live somewhere. Why is gentrification today different than this process of, you know, the workforce, you know, just developing or, you know, coming into the city to staff the jobs that are yeah. out there? You know, when I was a kid, my dad would tell me, well, neighborhoods go through these 30-year cycles, and this is just natural. These are natural things. And I, I, I always had an issue with that and had a problem with this idea of anything that is changing our communities is a natural process. Otherwise, you know, um, that's the hard part is when you're trying to fight against these things where people's – this is a common phrase, natural process um, – and I think that what we've seen in the last, uh, you know, 40 years, it's similar, but it's, it's, it's different, you know, like it's just more of like a hyper form of, of what we've experienced in the past. Um, you know, I was reading this book called Capital City and it talks about how in the past the industrial, uh, you had industry and you had real estate and they would uh, compete for the resources of the, the state, of the city. And now that we've had over the last 40 years of industry just pushed out, the real estate, fire and insurance uh, has created a city that is looks at housing not as they don't have to compete against industry. Industry looked at it as a as a cost. I think, right? Right. Like they looked they looked at it as a cost. Uh, housing was necessary. They needed to have good housing for their workers who could work and walk to their. Now we don't. That's that's gone. We've we've pushed pushed out. Uh, you know, in the seventies, the early nineties, we pushed out uh, production and re relocated that. So then in the nineteen nineties and the two thousands, we have cities becoming clusters for you know logistical clusters to coordinate flows of goods and 
and in and out of our population centers of the cities. And real estate became the dominant force. The real estate industry becomes the dominant force in our cities. No competition there. Sucking from the state. Uh, it's, it's different. And they don't look at housing for people. They look at it as housing now for uh, investment. You have skyscrapers in Chicago. You have that they build and investors put, put their excess capital in there and sit on it. It's not for people. We have houses in our neighborhoods that are uh, left open from the foreclosure crisis or just people just sit on it and wait for the property value to go up. And we have thousands of homeless people on our streets and under our viaducts. Right. So it's 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 a different it's a different way of doing things. They look at housing as um, uh, an investment, and you could leave those things empty and still make a profit off those. Oh things. yeah. So yeah. so I think gentrification is like, these processes always exist, but this is more of like a hyper form of what we've experienced. Yeah, I wanted to just touch on that a little bit because I think that. Um, all of us have been in one way or another, uh, like you say, in the last 40 years, affected by the technological uh, revolution. And that I started thinking, you know, even the outsourcing of jobs to other countries, that could not have been accomplished at the rate or the, the it is going on today. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you couldn't actually control production in, in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, until the computer came along. Right. You could have extractive industries. You like Eisenhower said the, we were in Vietnam for the tin and the tungsten. That's why we were there. Right. Well similarly we're in Africa for the cobalt. But um but the idea that uh that you could actually produce things just as well in China as you could here was ridiculous until the computer revolution came along. So it, it actually is just growing in its impact and impact. And so, right. so the, we're dealing, we're dealing with that in, in, in housing and repurposing industrial spaces and manufacturing spaces right yeah, now. Talk about that. Cause that's interesting. Well, I mean, you know, you turned me on to this, but um, to think about it a little bit deeper, but reading things about um, trying to repurpose these industrial spaces. Uh, Think about Chicago along these railroad lines and the industry that are the manufacturing factories that line these that are empty now, Uh, especially in my neighborhood moving west. uh, Past Pulaski, you have a lot of industry. There's a Pulaski Industrial Corridor. You have the industrial corridors along uh, the the trade lines, if you go along Grand, south of Grand Avenue, uh, the Beltline, uh, just east of Cicero Avenue, those places, in 2014, I started reading about, hey, if you want to be get in, these are real estate uh, journals or things like that. Hey, if you want to get into the next wave of how to make money, you need to figure out a way to repurpose these industrial manufacturing spaces as uh, creative spaces, maker spaces, breweries, distilleries, like all of those industries. If you could figure this out, it's telling investors, speculators, you can make it happen. And all recently I'm, I'm reading about 
these last mile industries like Amazon and Target and Walmart need to ship their stuff quickly to the consumers. And Chicago is largely left uh, those type of industries. They're out in the suburbs, these fulfillment centers and for Amazon, they're out in the suburbs. But they truly want to get into really close to the urban center. They want to get into what we call the last mile. So my neighborhood has been considered the last mile and they t literally have a term for it. And all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, I'm seeing these factories that you would never think could be repurposed are, are being bought by uh, folks that are from Miami, folks that are from Boston. Like, how is this possible? The, there are algorithms out there that put everything into it and figure out where would be the best place to dump your excess capital and where would be the best place uh, what what kind of industry do we need to focus on right now? It's these last mile uh, spots where we can deliver things, not one day, but one hour. Wow. <laughs> so, so, so literally there's factories along Central Avenue and Bloomingdale that are being bought up by Miami investors never been here. Oh, yeah. There are, people, there are places uh, on Costner, Costner and, and North Avenue that are folks from Boston are, are uh, – trying to invest in that. So places they've never been. And this harkens back, interestingly, harkens back to the history of Chicago when Chicago was first platted out. Uh, all the investors who've never even been to Chicago, they, they've heard about this magical place uh, going west and they invested in, in the swamp and, uh, put, and the price of land went up thousands of times what it was, what it was actually worth. So... Yeah, this, I mean, this place is fascinating. In fact, I mean, the after the fire, the, it was a clean slate for all sorts of developments and innovations in architecture and all those kinds of things that we look at. I mean, I, I personally love certain aspects of the park system and the boulevard system. Sure. and The, the these, public amenities. Yeah, you know? yeah, these things were were planned. I mean, and now what seems, nothing seems to be uh, planning except the profitability aspect. Sure. So that there's no Daniel Burnham, even though he was a big imperialist. Um, he, there's nobody he, had his, he had his problems. Huh? He had his problems. Yeah, but he was, he, not, he was a good He was designing planner. to... to he was designing these beautiful uh, plans to push out the poor. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But uh, eventually the poor could could take advantage of the park system or this and that so but we know that all these things are being encroached upon all the public spaces yes everything that that once was considered the common or you know for everybody's right. benefit is now being encroached upon i want to um you know, I, I did note that sign, uh, and I mentioned it here in the questions. This, this one woman was holding up a sign in Logan Square that said, "Now that the neighborhood's nice, why do I have to leave? Why do sure. I have to go?" And it, 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 it just strikes me as being the, the nature of gentrification. Whereas, you know, it's like there used to be. I don't. You guys probably don't remember, it, but there used to be a melodramatic 
evil guy, right, who was a evil landlord, right, and who had a, a curly mustache. It was a real weird thing, but it was like he was always coming around, you know, taking the money from the poor. And so we don't have that to look at. We're not looking at some kind of evildoer, exactly. Sure. So it's it's only when we understand that this is all economic that it's uh it's just as it's ruthless and evil even it's 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 also kind of faceless isn't it or it's kind of it, it i mean it it certainly is you know the, the woman who had the sign that now that the neighborhood's nice um uh, that um why do i have to leave right uh, first of all you should not leave you should they we're going to fight back. We're going to fight with you. Um, so for anyone feeling that it's just, gentrification is definitely, a, uh, has a psychological and, uh, impact on folks, even though you say it's an invisible force or, or, or it doesn't really have the face of that evil person twisting their mustache. Ha ha. Right, right. I'm going to take your money, uh, and your space. There will always be people that fight for their, space their lands their and so we this is this is not a new thing no you know it's, it's colonialization uh and uh, uh land enclosures colonialization colonization uh all of those things you keep you keep going through history it's all about taking land right. um and space so i think that uh what was the question in that? Well, it's I, but I, but I, I, I get what you're saying about the yeah, the whole. Yeah, that they they often try to. I mean, when we try to attack policy without understanding the economics behind it, then yeah. we're, you know, we're sort of dealing with the evil landlord. And I'm I'm just saying, even though there are evil politicians, certainly, and evil landlords in Chicago. And those two are a lot of times closely connected. That there's an oh, oh, underlying economics that's driving this whole thing that's pushing human beings out. Sure, I think. I mean, it, it's isn't it hard? Isn't it difficult? Because every time you push back against anyone, push in the history, push back against capital, they, they, they maybe pushed back for a little bit but then they find a way it's like water they find a way hide your heart from sight lock your dreams at night it could happen to you Count stars or you might stumble Someone drops a sigh and down you tumble Keep an eye on spring Run when church bells ring Yeah, I think you both brought up a good point, um, and that is 
gentrification has all these bad effects, and it doesn't necessarily mean there's some you know evil mustache twirling person making it happen. The people making money off of new properties might not have bad intentions at all. But the thing is, it has bad effects for so many people. And that applies not only to gentrification, but so many of the issues that we talk about. You don't have to be an evil person, you know, to be rich and for that to be a problem of what you're, you know, the things you're doing that's hurting people. And an example is what you also touched on is the privatization of public space. So the people who make uh, new businesses or homes or stuff out of public space, they're not necessarily thinking, oh, I'm going to take away everyone's home. I'm going to be a bad person. Ha -ha. Mm-hmm. You know, this angry, evil person in a high castle, whatever. Um, they're just wanting to make money. Sure. And then it turns out, well, they need this space. It's public space, but well, you know, they got to make their money and they're going to make the money off it because they can. And suddenly we don't have a park or suddenly, you know, we have this institution where it benefits the person who's making money and mm. we lose that space as the public. Well, yeah. I would also say that <clears throat> we're losing space. You know, there are people that believe that parks and public space and the commons is very democratic, quote, key to our, uh, who we are as a democracy and democratic people. Um, and not only do you see parks being uh, space being taken away or public space being taken away, what you see is uh, more, I feel is like nefarious. It's underhanded. It's like that, not that twirly mustache thing. And you have to look really carefully is um, that public space is being commodified, just like housing is being commodified. You have um, the state that can't really pay for certain public amenities like, like parks and, and, uh, uh, I can't think of any other public libraries. Uh, and they're increasingly trying to raise revenue by giving private sector or corporations uh, a piece of it. So so you have like uh, a public space, like downtown, you have um, Millennium Park. And uh, I'm going to bring my kids over here to the uh, Exelon uh stage i'm going to play over in this park uh, part of the park with the the chase pavilion i'm going to you know it's like oh yeah, piece, yeah. piecing up our public commons um into corporate sponsorships or things like that so that we're able to have these amenities right well i mean that started before ron but he certainly turned it into an art form you know right. i mean he was like it was all about the public-private enterprise. Right, right. Well, I think, like, one of the things that I do want to get on, and I think we have to, is there are actually people who slow down the gentrification process and people who exacerbate it. And mm-hmm. a lot of these people are powerful people in the mm-hmm. city power structure that... Um, you know, people in the the rest of the world look at this as the most corrupt city in the in the country in the United right. States, and that's simply because it is. Um, you know, it's no it's no damn secret. You know, everybody knows it. We're famous for it, and our, and every once in a while, an alderman will get wired up and turn a few of his flunky friends in. But could can you talk a little bit about how we're being 
thwarted. I mean, what we're we're trying to establish a way to defend ourselves from this, the worst aspects of this process, but we're not getting any help, are we? No, we're not getting any help. The city definitely is is helping the developer. The city is definitely helping. Um, uh, you know, they're they're charged with uh, taking care of the citizens, but but they really are. Um, you know, like give you a particular example, Andy and I, uh, you you and I have worked a little bit on the Humboldt uh, Park, hum, Von Humboldt right. School, where they were going to turn the closed school into to housing. And we had to deal with uh, folks that we thought were our friends in the housing department um, and folks that we thought were our friends in uh, uh, the city that were actually they seem to be wanting to help the people they, they, they want to, but they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because they have to uh, make sure capital is taken care of and they need to make sure that they need to mitigate some of the issues that uh, uh, unchecked capitalism yeah. plays upon the people. So we were in a situation where we could have, the people could have stopped uh, we demanded 100% affordability, and the people could have stopped it, but there were always folks that were saying, just allow the process to go forward, and we'll, uh, it will work out okay for the people. And it hasn't. It never will. It will never work out when we continue to uh, – mm, the city is not in it to uh, help the people. I feel like the city has um, – it only does little things to mitigate the problem. Uh, case in point, uh, you have like the CBA, the, the Obama Center Community Benefits Agreement. The city basically appropriated it mm -hmm. and changed it and tweaked it so that uh, real estate investors and capital uh, interest would not uh, have to, you know, they could continue doing their business without having to lose profit. Right. And right. you dump. Uh, 4.5 million dollars. It's not going to take 4.5 million dollars to solve this issue. It's going to take a complete restructuring of of how we do business in the city. So, so I don't think that uh, we're not getting any help from the city. In fact, um, it, the little things that they can do are just, uh, as you say, Andy, always like negotiating the surrender for the people. Yeah. Two issues in there that maybe we can talk about for a minute. Uh, so one of those issues is that there seems to be an opposition, and this seems to happen for a lot of these issues that we're going to be talking about on here. There seems to be an opposition, you know, pushing back against developers and gentrification, for example. And that opposition often doesn't want to confront the problem or doesn't confront it in a way that is effective enough. And so that's one issue I'd like to maybe discuss for a minute. And another issue I heard in there was a lot of people, when they think about, you know, Andy, you mentioned this is some corrupt city. People think about the government, right? People think about the alderman, the mayor, stuff like that. But the truth is there's no clear separation between these developers and the people in office, right? So the people making money off the speculation and stuff are connected to the public officials. So it's not just this distinct, you know, government over here, businessmen right. over here. Right. It's like they're kind of the same group in a way. Yeah. So 
if you have anything to say on that, and I just wanted to point it out real fast. Well, one thing I, I always go to, because um, Alderman Burke is probably one of the most um, singularly uh, corrupt people in uh, office. He's been an alderman for years. He was a cop before that. Um, and people say you don't want to really piss him off too much either. But uh, he's he's central to, he was central to the uh, development of the city, you know, in terms of housing and planning mm -hmm. and all, all those kinds of things on the financial, every, every aspect went through him. Well, he gave Donald Trump a $16 million tax abatement to Ooh. build Trump Tower. And everybody goes, what? What? I mean, he's a Democrat. Why is he? You know, but this is going on all over the place. The downtown is being built up. I walked through Logan Square the other day. There's, there's luxury housing going up everywhere. Mm -hmm. The Mega Mall, which used to be a, a place where uh, a lot of people shopped in the neighborhood, it was torn down. The units that are going up are going like for over $1,300 for a damn studio. Well, yeah, it's 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 all it's, out of my league, and I, you know, um, so I think that somebody set that up. You know, what an alderman got a a tax abatement or got a waiver or something went down, and and by the time the ground is broke and the deal is done, you you don't you don't have a way to really legally stop it right well yeah the system is rigged the system is all set up against us i mean our housing commissioner that we have right now uh she came out of a group that put out a report that uh, about segregation you know cost trillion dollars to to uh, our citizens our city and also a big report on the use of aldermanic prerogative um, which gives the aldermen in our city the sole, like the the um, they have power over land use in in their little area, and, and you know a lot of people have said, you, you, how do you what do you get? You get folks that are donate developers that are donating to the campaigns. So this is feedback cycle with the developers and the aldermen. Um, it, you know, the people who are trying to rise up against gentrification and they go to their aldermen, seek help from the public official, and the public officials can't do anything. It's beholden to the speculators, beholden to the developers. Uh, Why? They get campering contributions. They are, when something gets developed they're able to use that as uh, a way to say that we've done something for the community we've been able to bring these amenities to the community it's just this feedback loop and i think you know they're beholden to them and i think that um we have folks in the just using the city council as an example we have folks in there right now that did not take campaign contributions that um um are in there that are for say that they're for the people and 
they're under the same, they come under the same issues when they're dealing with the bureaucracy of the whole, the whole system. They're, they can't come up against uh, a development publicly because in private, all the little, uh, sister agencies and all the little uh, bureaucracies of uh, the the city come up against them. In fact, I know of a situation mm. in which uh, an alderman was going up against uh, a development and was told, look, let this go through. Um, uh, the mayor wants this to go through. Um, and, you know, you're new to this. You're new to the city council. If you let this go through, then you know the things that you want to do in the future are going to work out for you. But if you don't allow this to go through, then you put in jeopardy all other affordable housing in your community. So even the eldermen who campaign on you know taking people's money instead of developers' money, for right. example, and they do that and they get into office. You're saying they're still pressured once they get into office, even though they didn't take their money in their campaign, they're still pressured when they get in office to you know, do favors or else there's consequences for them personally right. or there for are. them and their political career in the future. Yes, that, that, that is happening at, right now as we speak, and that has happened. And uh, I think that uh, those, are our fr those are our friends, certainly, but when push comes to shove, they are just trying to balance things out between the developer and the people, and the developer always comes out on top. Yeah, that was one of the things that Harold Washington used to say, we need balanced development. But in reality, there's no such thing. It's a complete sham. Uh, I, get, I get really irate when I, when I hear that because it's sort of like uh, – uh, compassionate conservatism or something. It's just a complete uh, misnomer and a, sh and a joke. So I, I wanted to touch upon, like, one of the things I saw in the paper the other day was, um, you know, these, these people who've recently come into the neighborhood in Logan Square in mm -hmm. the first ward, they went to the alderman's office, and they're representing their interests, their they're where property becomes the most sacred thing of all. You sure. Know? Are you and talking they, about they, small homeowners? Yeah, or are you yeah. talking about property owners? Yeah, pro yeah both, everyone, I both. think. But uh, some of them are, are more large property owners sure. who are disguising themselves as small little interests. But, but at well, any they're rate... They're organizing the small property owners yeah, yeah. and small homeowners. Yeah, yeah which, which this is like... Um, a combination that is taking place now that's going to be political in the next automatic election. I mean, the aldermen had a certain constituency that they were answerable to, but now if you if you uh, ran a referendum in Logan Square about like uh, development of affordable housing, it's going to be a, a real split because even though it's still mostly renters out there that these uh, property owners have a disproportionate amount of power because they are considered the rock base of the city's, right. uh, uh, you know, finances. And I think in that particular space, Logan Square, we're just right, right at the precipice of 
I mean, they've had some setbacks. Those folks that are organizing the the property owners and like people that owned many properties in in Logan Square, organizing the small owner, the small landlord, um, and the small homeowner, they've had some setbacks because the renters and the folks that say like, why do we have to move out of this community have organized for a very long time. But when you lose 20,000 folks out of Logan Square, you're losing a lot of the people that you've organized. There's, we're coming to a point That's where what I mean. we're, we're losing, we're coming to a point where that faction, those that lost, uh, particularly about this Emmett, was this Emmett street? Yeah. Emmett, Emmett street. You know, it's a hundred percent affordable. And the folks that were against it basically lost because it was a lot of good organizing in the community. But we're coming to a point where they're going to win a few going forward. They're going to win going forward because we've lost so many families. We lost so many people that are were organized. Yeah, and, and uh, one point is I always try to make, um, people don't appreciate it, but they lost, the people who organized around Emma Street lost Lathrop Homes. They lost mm-hmm. 800 units mm-hmm. and gained 100 and called it a victory. It's right. It's... The net, we st- the net loss is still there. I'm, I'm not saying st- anything we- against the effort because it's a very difficult thing to fight sure. uh, given all these uh, restrictions on what we're supposed to do and what yeah. we're not allowed to do. I, you're right. You're right. And I think there were a lot of maneuverings that it took to make that Emmett Street happen. And, you know, again, they also had a friend in the housing department that – when those folks that were against it, the property owners came to the to the meeting, she shut them down, and she's like, "We're going forward with this." The small homeowner is we. I'll put myself in there. We are enticed. We've been enticed since the 1930s when federal officials said that we could stop. Uh, communism by getting all these renters into uh, home ownership, right? We could stop them from thinking critically if we get them into home ownership and property ownership, right? So, so I, I think we've had what we're talking about 80, uh, 80 years, 90 years <laughs> of, of indoctrination right. that like you are building your wealth you are going to pay for your child's education you're going to uh, supplement your retirement through this property right and so we've we've essentially come along the side of the developers and the uh, capitalists thinking that they're benevolent improving our communities because we want our property values to go up so we're taken care of and we're not looking at the big system like it's all against all of us Everyone but the the rich, everyone but these folks that are trying to make profit. It's they're they're against us, and we need to to do that, and we need to do a a better job because a lot of times, longtime homeowners, small homeowners, and landlords only come on to organize with us when the property values are, I mean, property taxes are going to push them out. Right. So I think that there's this idea that you talk about about developing consciousness and organizing in spaces where it hasn't hit yet is so important. Uh, There are many folks that are organizing longtime residents in Humble Park and Logan Square at this moment. There are 
in my opinion, few folks that are organizing uh, small homeowners going west uh, to think critically about, hey, we're all pawns in this system. We're being used by the developers because we're we're being used by them. They're we give we're we're being used to uh, give credence to what they're doing in our communities, right? Against other neighbors. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it seems like uh, I'm, I just noted the other day we did a podcast about the prophetically, I might add, that we talked about the oncoming crash. And mm-hmm. in the last crash, we just lost all the gains over the past five or six years were lost in two or three days, 3,600 point drop. And, mm-hmm. you know, they blame it on a virus or whatever. It's <laughs> so not all the, all the, um, you know, you know, that, puzzle Jenga where you pull out one Mm -hmm. I mean that's what happened it could have been anything you know to trigger this disruption but I don't want to get into all that because the virus was just something that caused a a small disruption in supplies it caused a little bit of panic it could have been anything right yeah that does that right but but um in looking back at that and then looking back further to 2008 recession when, as I understand it, uh, 97% of the equity held by African Americans, which was held mostly in their homes, yes. was lost and uh, yeah. not recovered. So that this crash that's upon us is going to be equally devastating for most likely, I'm not. I'm not in a game of predicting anything. I proved I don't know what I'm talking about the other day. But, but, you know what I'm saying? What's we're all vulnerable. We're all, yeah, we are all vulnerable. I mean, in before the 2008, and I, I will again throw myself into this because when um, uh, in the 2000s, I I bought a condo in 2001. I bought a condo and. And, and, you know, I, just like many people that came in, uh, I was a teacher. I made my, my money for the first time. I think that this is important to get into to real estate, to start taking care of myself, my family, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I went through the t- 2008 um, restructuring or whatever you want to call it, recession. Um, and, and I was lucky. I was lucky. But there were tons of crazy things that were going on with uh, – Loans that were uh, adjustable, and you use your house as a bank, pull out the equity, buy your buy everything. We we all know that story. I was I was living at the time at North and Pulaski, like fifteen hundred block of Keystone. Um, the houses on that block were the highest they've ever been: four hundred thousand dollar homes, three hundred eighty thousand dollar homes. People, people buy it in the community. It's just normal when people were getting loans to buy that. And you take that even going further down to uh, Chicago Avenue uh, and Pulaski. Those homes over there were going three fifty back in two thousand seven. No kidding. Three fifty uh, at Chicago and Pulaski. And I knew a bunch of people. I was going to church in, in the neighborhood uh, at the time, and a bunch of people who were like, you know. They bought their first house in that area, but it was three hundred fifty thousand dollars homes, 
And when the market crashed, it hit the neighborhood so hard. And this is a black and uh, Puerto Rican and Mexican right. community. Uh, hit the neighborhood so hard. The house on my block that was 385000 was worth 85000 in uh, 2009. And the family was just under underwater. That's an example. There were other examples. And the houses that on uh, Chicago Avenue, people just abandoned them, left them. Uh, they were, were selling houses over there for $10,000, $15,000 in 2009. Mm-mm-mm. That much of a devastation in the community. And that's when you started seeing people were scrapping the houses left and right. Just You would pull out copper and for like a couple hundred dollars, a couple, you know, $10,000, dollars and you would cause $200,000 worth of damage. They started putting those X's all over the houses over there, tearing them down. That. It was it was a devastation. It was devastation. And we haven't recovered. The neighborhood has not recovered from that. Wow, you're touching on a lot of sore points here. <laughs> I mean, these people are suffering. This is not uh, some kind of benign neglect. That's what uh, you guys are too young to remember, mm-hmm. Daniel Patrick Monahan, but that's what he suggested in regards to the poor, what we should do about it. Benign neglect. Right. But this is not even that. I mean, this is an uh, aggressive, uh, you know, assault being carried out by financial institutions, the biggest of them, the biggest corporations in the country are involved in this speculation and when you off. when you talk about remember when you were talking about um gentrification and these type type of things not having uh, uh an enemy that you could see uh, you're naming the enemy right now is this what you what you're what you're doing naming the corporations naming the developers these yeah. are easy to, these are easy for are easier for people to see as as what we can fight against, right? Who we could fight against? Yeah. Well, I don't. You got some stuff to add to that because that's that's it. It's hard to see sometimes, you know, who the enemy is in this in gentrification and housing and in a lot of other areas. But um, I did want to touch on a few big picture questions. Sure. So we like to talk about a lot of the big picture stuff and also, you know, get into specifics sometimes. But thinking about gentrification. There are a few things that come to my mind. Um, first of all, a lot of people see gentrification. I try to see, so I try to see gentrification sometimes, and some people will say, "Well, it's it's not so bad of a thing, or it's even a good thing, right?" Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to see not only the enemy, but the bad effects of it. Yeah. So to yeah. for, to see the bad effects, you have to get the perspective of the people it's hurting, right? Right. And people don't hear that sometimes. Yeah. So people see these new stores, and people see this new. Um, you know, bike trail or whatever it is. Yes. And they think, you know, it's pretty, like, what's wrong with gentrification? Yeah. So I just think it's important to do this for gentrification and for a lot of topics to think not just what can I see that's, like, good, but also how are the people, you know, if someone says something like, the gentrification's hurting me in my community, mm-hmm. listen to them. What? Why does it hurt them? And I think if you ask that question, you'll find that it is hurting a lot of people and gentrification is hurting more people than it's helping. You're right. And the people that it's helping, you know, it's it's not a necessity. It's just like, it's like the cherry on top. It's like they're making extra money and then other people are losing their homes. You know, it's not like an equal, like, 
this person gets a bad thing happen, this person mm -hmm. gets a good thing happen. It's like uh, this person gets some excess in their life that they don't even need, while this person gets their whole necessities, you know, world shaken. I have not um, been displaced yet. I haven't been displaced by gentrification, uh, but I know many people that have, and I'm surrounded by folks that have, and um, we need to hear their stories. And I, and I, and it's truly important because it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear. It's hard to hear that um, there are people that are on our streets that are homeless. There's it's hard for people to come to grips with um, they are consumers of gentrification, and they are um, uh, you know that feeds into the whole system. And and it's people want to use the salve of saying, but I like my neighborhood. It's diverse. I love living around people that are different than me. They want to use the is that salve. Is that what it's called? The, the like something to heal them, something to make them feel good. Is um, uh, look, I just want to be a good neighbor. I'm not. I'm not doing anything bad. I'm just trying to be a nice person living next to someone. And I think equally so. They need to know about how gentrification is affecting people, and they need to know about what the big systems are in play. Speaking of systems, you know, that's what this is. And my conclusion about the system, and you can tell me what you think about this, gentrification, and you are aware of this because you work in Chicago public schools. Right. And I work in Chicago public schools for the past six years or so, and I've seen this as well. And you can see it. There's a parallel in the education, you know, policy and education reform and education housing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, gentrification is racist, right? right. Gentrification I, is racist. I agree. You agree. And gentrification is class warfare. So looking at the big picture, gentrification, more people who are non-white are affected negatively, mm -hmm. overwhelmingly, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like, again, it's not that, you know, evil villain sitting in the chair thinking, you know, I'm going to be racist right now, mm -hmm. you know, it's, but somehow, some way it, ha it turns out that the gentrification happens and it most negatively affects people of color. Right. Mm -hmm. And it also most negatively affects, you know, the working class, the poor and working class. Mm -hmm. So the people who are benefiting from this are overwhelmingly white, not always overwhelmingly though, and definitely overwhelmingly wealthy. So, mm -hmm. The majority of people are have only mostly things to lose from gentrification, while the a small amount of people, increasingly smaller amount of people, are benefiting. I you know, agree. I, I mean, I think that's right on. I do too. I think I think like that. That's the hidden uh, villain, if you will, in the sense that we we know that there's this causal relationship with all the problems that we have right. and the and the wealthy who sit atop you know more than half of the wealth in the United States and, and control probably 80% of it I don't know it's just getting outrageous how few are are in the at the helm um, one being this Bloomberg guy yeah. 60 billion dollars you know invested in every kind of real estate scam imaginable but but like 
I want to talk about the causal relationship between gentrification and uh, police repression and also um, violence that goes on within the neighborhoods that are most affected, the impacted neighborhoods. Because you and I have both been to the healing corner. Yes. We've seen, I've known uh, 20 mothers uh, who've lost a child to gun violence. I've stood on the corner with kids whose brother just got shot the weekend before and killed. Uh, you know, it's just like, it's an overwhelming heartbreak what's going on and it's it, a lot of it has to do with the denial of goods and services because you're mm -hmm. too poor to pay mm -hmm. for them and what is housing but a necessity of life so right if you're too if you're too poor to pay like there was a family in logan square a young latino woman her family got pushed out by a landlord who raised their rent six hundred dollars and like she said, we got nowhere to go. We got we have to go. Some some of these people, families end up uh, homeless, you know. So there is there is an aspect to this that is about class and it is about class warfare. So we're not talking about like you can be neutral in the face of gentrification. We. Like Howard Zinn said, you can't be neutral on a moving train. And this, this is more. Yeah, this is this is a, a freight train to hell. You know, <laughs> it's just like rolling. Right. And uh, w let's talk about strategies, yeah. uh, which are hard to come by unless you have an analysis. And I think we're getting towards that. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> strategies are. Um, let me ask you, Andy, what what kind of uh, what do you see as it? I, I mean, I mean, I have I have a couple things that I can throw at you, but um, I want to know about from your experience. I've worked in uh, projects in Oakland and Chicago and you know West Virginia and public housing projects and trying to organize the the you know the people there. Uh, Organizing the poor has been what I've been trying to do. It's it's very difficult, but I think that strategies begin to emerge when when you did what you did already, which is to uh, formulate based on your analysis of the situation, formulate an approach to right. a developer who had uh, who had plans that didn't include you, and you you developed a plan that said, wait a minute, dude, you're not, you're not going, this ain't going down like this. We're going to be there. We're going to be obstructing this thing. Right. If we could model that in one place in the city, and I'm, I'm really going back to my friends uh, from the Puerto Rican concerned voters who against gentrification in the sixties and fifties had, uh, arm themselves with uh, both uh, fire suppression equipment mm -hmm. and arm themselves mm -hmm. against against arsonists and gangs who were trying to keep them from living right. in a neighborhood. Right. And they, they had to do that stuff. Yeah. What I don't know if it's going to go that way. I don't know how it's going to go, but I think we do have to 
begin to model some kind of way where we pick it out, uh, maybe somebody, not me, maybe, because I'm not really in the community, but Man. the community decides. We're not putting up with another uh, subsidized development where we don't get any jobs, we don't, we mm -hmm. can't afford to live, you know, that's displacing well, our students. I mean... We have to have... Yeah. yeah, we. I mean, we have to have plans that. I mean, there's mechanisms to go against developers and developments that are getting you know public subsidies. There's like tried and true methods and ways to like push up against that. But increasingly, or I'm experiencing um, developers that are coming into the community that are developing as a right of uh, as of right, so they can do it without. Uh, they're trying to do these things without um, getting public subsidies, even. So this that's really makes it difficult. I mean, there's there's a lot of things to push back against uh, gentrification. Uh, the big thing uh, when it relates to uh, tenants has been trying to institute in Illinois, at least trying to institute rent control. Rent control is one way to uh, uh, mitigate costs. You know, we're doing things in the in the CPS, we're learning about different school systems uh, where they're basically saying that we're going to um, take this idea of 30%. No one should be paying, no one should be housing burden. No one should be paying, our family should not be paying more than 30% of their income going towards housing. We're going to offset that cost and they float a bond and they do things like that. There's things going on in California that are happening like that. There are tenant tenants being organized in Oakland or tenants being organized in New York uh, to they have a strong tenant movement that are pushing up against things. People are talking about uh, a new public housing in, in, in the city. Uh, people are talking about you have folks like you mentioned in Philadelphia. And I know that we have folks in Chicago doing this, that were uh, when the housing crisis happened, they were occupying the housing. Iraq, you know, so there's just like different strategies and different ways. I don't know necessarily know the bullet point, uh, the bullet silver bullet for stopping gentrification, but I know that uh, new things that have come up are just knowing that we have to be willing to uh, organize and uh, be part of movements. We have to work together, um, and we need to be willing to kill projects. We need to be willing to do what we can and maneuver ways, cut off pipelines of finance. Uh, and, and it takes a lot of education. It takes a lot of knowing how to, to do that. Yeah, so we need you, that. You, I, I just want to say you just hit the nail on the head because I'm, I'm like start, I was starting a trip, you know, and I had, I'm starting to imagine troops that I don't have. There's probably nothing worse than some uh, general sitting back imagining forces that he doesn't have but mm -hmm. um what you're saying education that's why we started this philosophical gathering why we did all this stuff because we know that's what time it is a lot of people are looking for easy answers and silver bullets right. but there's not really right, right. for gentrification right. or really any other issue big issue that we're facing but and it also seems like looking back on our conversation, trying to parse out what might work, what wouldn't work, we can eliminate some uh, tactics and strategies. So, you know, don't waste our time with those things. One thing I would eliminate personally is we can't look to 
city hall and we can't look to yes. the mayor, at least not to save us. You know, you can't just elect someone and then hope that things are going to go well because it's not going to work like that. So we can eliminate that uh, possibility. And then we have to form some starting points. There's no uh, silver bullets or easy answers, perhaps, but we can come up with starting points. And I think one of those starting points, major starting points that we discussed is you have to have your community, your community that's affected by the problem. You have to get together. You have to get together in the first place and you have to say, well, this is affecting us. We're going to get together and, you know, like we're doing with this podcast and this idea, right. we're going to discuss what to do about it because we don't know what to do about it. But we have to first realize that it's an issue, get together, talk about it, and then be willing to come up with a plan and carry that through. And I want to I want to mention this is for all organizers out there. It's really important to know best practices uh, when you gather folks. You know, we're all in different places and spaces as far as like where we are at. And I think that those that have been most marginalized in our communities, those that um, we have to like, even in those situations, flip the power uh, dynamics, right? We have to be aware of the power dynamics because um, when we're organizing, there's a, there's a bunch of power dynamics that we have to have a lens and a critical analysis about. Um, and we need uh, it to be an inverse, in my opinion, inverse of what we've what we've seen. We can't have uh, folks from uh, other uh, outside folks coming from the outside trying to organize the poor or trying to organize the people that have been uh, affected by gentrification. It needs to be the folks that have been affected by gentrification. It needs to be the folk, longtime residents that are leading leading the organizing. Well, so, what are the social workers going to do then? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a place for, for, for that, but it's the leading is the most important piece. I hear you. People can come from outside and help and, right. and be a follower and be a builder and work together, but not come from the outside and tell everyone what they're right. going to do about exactly. it. Exactly, exactly. And, it's, you know, you have, to, you have to parse through that. I think that's best practice to parse through that, those type yeah. of things. So that was our discussion on gentrification and housing, and we're not going to get around to everything that you can talk about with gentrification and housing. There's so much to talk about. And I think we'll talk about it more in the future. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Bill. Uh, we appreciate you being here and having your experience to talk about. So uh, looking forward to you being back on the show in the future as well. Well, thank you, guys. Excellent. I really appreciated having the opportunity to talk. And I just want to like end it by saying that when it comes to this gentrification piece, uh, my mantra is that if humans created it, humans can undo it and create something different. So, that's right. Thank that's you good. for having me. Amen to that. Mm -hmm. Thank you.